forced to abandon his plane as he ran out of gas in the middle of the night in a violent thunderstorm on the far side of the world. The men escaped from enemy-controlled territory by resourcefully managing to communicate with people who couldn't speak, read, or write their language. Several of these boys, landing in a war zone, were captured, confined to years in solitary, tortured, forced to sign false confessions, tried as war criminals, and executed by firing squad. One flyer was starved to death, while the survivors, rescued at war's end, had been reduced to living skeletons. One of them, tortured to the limits of human endurance, found God, and subsequently returned to Japan on a campaign of forgiveness. Another was lost in a stateside limbo of army bureaucracy and mental illness. Still others were interned as enemy aliens by the Soviet Union, and had to be smuggled out into what is now Iran. One airman who began his military career on horseback would survive the mission, be captured by the Nazis, become part of the Great Escape, and end his service years working with NASA and astronauts. Their raid, meanwhile, would lead directly to what every historian now believes was the turning point in the war against Japan. As a child, I was taught that history is made by kings and generals, popes and presidents, leading their secular and spiritual nations ever forward. As an adult, I learned that often enough the polar opposite is true, that the big moments just as often depend on the actions of ordinary people in extraordinary times. In the last years of his life, Dwight D. Eisenhower told Stephen Ambrose that Higgins was the man who won the war for us. Andrew Jackson Higgins, being the New Orleans boat builder, who invented and mass-produced thousands of plywood, flat-bottomed, ramp-fronted barges that floated American soldiers onto the beaches of Italy, Normandy, and the South Pacific. There were plenty of other unheralded men and women Ike could have mentioned, such as Robert Alexander Watson Watt, the British physicist who developed enemy aircraft detecting radar. William M. Friedman of the U.S. Army Signal Intelligence Service, and Alan M. Turing of the British Government Code and Cipher School, the American and English decryptors of Japanese and Nazi ciphers. The thousands of stateside Rosie and Ronnie the Riveters, who built more tanks, planes, ships, guns, and bombs than any other country could ever hope to produce. And the men of this story, who convinced the American public in the war's first dark days that the Allies might ultimately triumph over what then seemed an invincible enemy. Today, the United States is a global superpower. But at the dawn of World War II, the entire American coastline was under assault, and the nation was too weak to do much about it. It was an era when the United States and Britain had lost every single battle they'd entered, and had been beaten from all sides. It was a time when most Americans thought the war was over that the Axis powers had already won. In the early days of researching this book, my mother died. And when I came home for her funeral, there was one thing I especially wanted to see, her photo albums. Keeping these books, chronicling seven decades, had been one of her many hobbies, meticulously tipping in official pictures at family ceremonies, as well as a barrage of casual snaps. During the war, she escaped her hometown in rural Wisconsin to become an air traffic controller in Atlanta, where she found herself surrounded by interested servicemen. And the pictures from that time are astounding.
Though the world may have been falling apart, a professional posed her in one of the classic looks of that era. The eyes focused ahead, the smile a determined glow of optimism for the future. Across the album's page were serrated brownie shots my father had sent from New Guinea, in his khakis, as lean and slouching as Robert Mitchum. The pictures were mystifying. Neither was the mother and father I remembered, but both were people I'd like to know. Research for the book led me to a newspaper archive and an article listing the survivors of this mission and the towns where they lived. Using an Internet white pages, I started dialing, in the order of what the article had implied was the importance of the men standing in their Raiders Association. Twelve hundred World War II vets are dying every day, and the men I was trying to reach were no exception. I called the first name on the list, deceased. The second, dead. The third had advanced Hodgkins and could no longer talk on the phone. The fourth said it had been so long he couldn't remember a thing. The fifth, dead. On the sixth, a daughter answered and very politely explained, He can't come to the phone right now. He's out getting tested. Since next week, he's having brain surgery. Could you call back another time? One airman was so active as a retired senior citizen that it took eleven phone calls to set up an interview. I called a few weeks later to double-check some facts, only to learn he'd suddenly passed away. Others wanted to participate as part of their last testament. These very sick men would recount events from sixty years past in faint, barely there voices, determined to have their stories told. Around this time, I had to make two business trips, one to Massachusetts and another to California. In both Nantucket and Yosemite, at opposite ends of the country and completely by chance, I wandered into local cemeteries. Their tombstones were blank. Though originally carved into marble to last for all eternity, the names and dates of the dead had been fully erased by two hundred years of history. The stones had forgotten and were now rendered into rock-hard spots of amnesia. Bill Birch, bombardier of Plane 11, said, It is my hope that your book will acquaint future generations with the tenacious spirit America's men and women displayed those fifty-odd years ago. The aircraft and shipyard workers who built the necessary planes and ships needed to defeat a savage and ruthless enemy. The farm and schoolboys who, in a few short weeks, learned to use the products of the factories and shipyards, and then manned the ramparts of defense. It was their determination and courage which ensured the final victory. This they did through personal sacrifice, and in spite of facing an invader superior not only in numbers, but in experience and equipment. It is my hope that the first heroes has met Bill's challenge, and that it clearly demonstrates how the most ordinary men and women, just doing their job,